0: This episode of the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast is sponsored by Katrina Burke Coaching, helping caring professionals create a life of balance and flow. Katrina has a range of programs available for teachers and school leaders, so for more information, go to katrinaburkecoaching.com.au. This is the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast, a weekly show to help you prioritise your health, happiness and wellbeing so that you can thrive in the classroom and in life. I'm your host, Ellen Ronalds Keane. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. This week, I have a really interesting uh, episode for you. So it's part one of an interview with Gigi Langer. But before we get to that, let's do the review of the week. This one comes from MN2008. That's the uh, iTunes name that they've left the review under. And the review says, very helpful. I loved the analogy of the false prevention class and the insights into what really defines balance. This episode, let me recall that I have a choice about how to approach my profession, which is really empowering. Thank you so much, MN2008, for that lovely review. And I'm really glad it's empowering because that's really what I aim to do with all of my work with teachers. Uh, And I believe that the episode being referred to in this review is Season 3, Episode 6, which is called The Myth of Work-Life Balance. So you can check that one out after this if you like. Uh, And remember to leave a review because it really does help the podcast get found by more teachers and you will also have a chance to be uh, read out on air. Speaking of supporting the show, don't forget about Patreon. So it's just a little reminder for me that every bit helps – it helps keep the podcast on the air and arriving in your podcatchers regularly. Head to www.patreon.com forward slash self-care for teachers to support the show. And one last little reminder, it's self-care September as I'm recording this, and it's not too late to sign up for the teacher self-care September challenge. Although September has already begun, you can still join in and make the most of this month to really prioritise your health and happiness and hopefully get to the school holidays with a little bit left in the tank. Head on over to www.selfcareforteachers.com.au September to sign up. All right, on to today's interview with Gigi Langer. So, Gigi holds a PhD in psychological studies in education. And a master's in psychology, both from Stanford University. As a professor, she won several awards for her teaching. Uh, and as Georgia M. Langer, she wrote four books for educators, as well as hundreds of articles on professional growth. As a person in recovery, Gigi hasn't had a, dr- a drug or a drink for over 30 years, although she does say that she occasionally overindulges in chocolate and historical novels, which I can completely understand. Uh So through her speeches, retreats, and workshops, she helps thousands of people improve their lives at home and at work. She has a really, uh, really quite a powerful story, and um, she's written a book about it and what she's learned from it. So Gigi's book, which is called 50 Ways to Worry Less Now, Reject Negative Thinking to Find Peace, Clarity, and Connection, was published this year, February 2018, by Possum Hill Press. And in the book, she shares her personal journey as a prisoner of fear, Worry and Substance Abuse. Like I said, it's a really powerful story. Uh, And then you can also learn how she turned her life around by overcoming her negative thinking. And um, she shares 50 practical techniques to worry less. So this is a two-part episode uh, because we talked so much. We had so much to talk about. So this episode today is part one of the interview where Gigi shares a bit about her background and her story and how she came to be writing a self-help book. And then in the next episode, you'll hear the second part of the interview, including some really excellent book recommendations, of course, including Gigi's book, 50 Ways to Worry Less Now, and loads of really great tips to help teachers increase their health, happiness and well-being. So with that being said, please enjoy part one of my interview with Gigi Langer. Hello, Gigi. Welcome to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. Hi, (laughs) Alan. I'm so glad you're here because – I've been reading your book and I'm very, very much enjoying it. So I'd love for you, before we get into the, the, the content of the book, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, and, and, you know,
1: we'll, we'll lead in from there into what brought you to write your book, 50 Ways to Worry Less. Sure. Great. Uh, it's really nice to be talking to you. Um, well, I was a middle school teacher. I taught, um, seventh and eighth grade in a public school in Colorado. And then I, um, went on for graduate work and, and I ended up working at Eastern Michigan University, which prepares many, many, many teachers for the U.S. And, um, so I was teaching graduate students and undergrads, mostly teaching methods, and I supervised student teachers and I forced myself every few years to take over a friend's Spanish class in May and try out some of the techniques I was teaching the undergrads and grads so I could talk from experience. Uh, So, And and then along with that time at Eastern uh, Michigan University, I also did tons of workshops with teachers in a um, collaborative kind of inquiry model for teachers looking at student work and using that as a way to understand how to reach the students they were having trouble getting to, so that was kind of uh, what I've been doing. I've been retired for a few years now, and um, decided I would write something other than education books. So <laughs> I put together my all my tips for how to keep my head screwed on straight and put them in a book. <laughs> and it's a brilliant book, thank
0: you. Uh, and I highly recommend it to everybody listening. But we'll get to that in a second because I know that. That alongside that sort of professional career, you had a real you've had a real personal journey. Ah, uh, yes. Of health and relationships and um, you know addiction. Um, so I'd, I I really appreciate if you would share a little bit about that. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit more detailed in the book, and people should go and read it. But uh, I guess what were the health and well being challenges that you had that then led you to be overcoming them with some of these strategies that you share in the book
1: yeah you know i um I was always prone to you know anxiety, not in a a diagnostic medical way, but I ran tight, you know, always bit my nails, you know was the youngest kid in a in an alcoholic family, and right away, I felt good about myself when I was in school, so I you know used my high achieving as a source of security and um and then you know I got this degree and that degree and you know, this career and that career. And, and then it, it kind of became impossible to keep up that standard that I had set for myself. It was kind of like a house of cards. And, um, I couldn't get relationships to work. I was facing my third divorce and I was not yet 40. <laughs> and, uh, I was, you know, uh, drinking and using marijuana. And, uh, really by the time I finished grad school, I had, um, just I was pretty much a mess, you know, but I, I made it through my degree. Um, but when I moved to Michigan with my third husband, I reveal this in the book, but it's it addiction's a weird thing. But, um, you know, within nine months of marrying my third husband, he was traveling quite a bit and I was going out to bars and picking up strangers. Now, this is behavior I would never do sober, but so... I I had this dissonance between how my career was looking better and better. And my personal life was getting seedier and seedier. Finally, I went running to a psychologist and I said, you know, what's wrong with this picture? And uh, he said, you know, you're in the early stages of alcoholism and you had it in your family and it'll only get worse. And uh, it took me about six months of working with him before I finally went to a 12 step meeting. And, um, and I've stayed in that program ever since I got a sponsor. I have wonderful female friends in recovery, and it's it's just been a great a great thing for me personally. Mm, wow, good journey, yeah.
0: It's a big journey, and um, and I and I'm you know I really appreciate you being so open and and honest about that because I mean I know that that's uh part of your part of your book is about uh the importance of that honesty, uh but I also think it's it's difficult when these are, you know, these are really big life challenges, but there are also many of these things, addiction, whether it's with a substance or, or something else in our lives. Um, you know, addiction to work is something that I think a lot of people in the modern world face. And, and also, as you said, that sense of really high standards for ourselves being the what the, the thing that we kind of cling onto for security. Uh, many of us are actually dealing with, with levels of that, perhaps not quite in the same way that you experienced before you ended up going to the 12-step program. But I think it's important that we talk about some of these things more openly so that, you know, people can learn. We can learn from each other's stories and have hope. Right, right. stories.
1: Yeah, because when I got into recovery, you know, I started peeling back those layers. And, um, you know, one of the first things I discovered was I was addicted to romantic love, you know, and I'd been kind of, I had created this invented self that, um, I thought would make the man happy, that I thought would, you know, make the career happy. So I was, I really didn't know who I was. I was just kind of pretending and, you know, looking, looking through that and getting to see that, um, I had people around me who liked me for who I was and I didn't have to carry any of those masks with me. Really, really started to liberate me. It didn't, it wasn't instantaneous. It took, it took time. But the, you know, there was the addiction to the romantic love. Then I discovered the workaholism. And I always joke that, you know, we should start a 12 step group for workaholics. But of course, no one would come. (laughs) No,
0: they wouldn't have time. They'd be too busy at work. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Well, and I think, I think that's important too, to, to, um, point out that, I mean, it's not an, it's not an overnight change. Uh exactly. I think in your book you say you've been, is it 31 years you've been yeah, over yeah. now? And that's, so that's, it's not an overnight success or a quick fix or a magic pill. And as frustrating as that is sometimes for people in the midst of things, I think it's important to set those expectations that it's not just all going to get better overnight. It's
1: not a Disney happy ending, you know tie everything up in a neat little bow at the end. Yeah, because there was the, you know, dysfunctional family that I came from and there were issues left from that. And so really what happened was even though I got sober and I was working through a lot through the 12 steps, over time I realized that I needed therapy. Um Then I started discovering, you know, cognitive therapy tools and Scientific research on the brain and reprogramming and, you know, negative thinking. And then I started delving into a variety of spiritual teachings or quasi spiritual teachings or energy things. And, and I didn't do those out of my own intellectual desire. I was trying to figure out how to keep my feet on the ground and my head in a good place rather than constantly being afraid and negative and, you know, thinking these self-defeating thoughts to myself. Mm, so the, it's, uh, what I can sort of gather from that is,
0: and, and I, I think you'll explain this more hopefully, but is that even though you perhaps had started to deal with some of the, the more prominent, uh, you know, the things that were really obviously toxic in your life, like the addictions to substances, uh, there were layers of other things and, you know, the anxiety still persisted just because you were sober, that didn't solve everything. Just because you had, um, you know, now divorced the third husband, that didn't make everything better. There was more layers and and you were still learning
1: how and, and where to go for support to overcome some of that, right? Right, right. And, you know, I started, I mean, I really don't like emotional discomfort, you know, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't have any of my usual addictive substances, whether it was overwork or drinking or romance or, you know, whatever those things were that I could kind of numb myself out and not feel so anxious. Once I didn't have those because I saw how unhealthy they were, then I had to start discovering the tools that were going to help me through. For example, at work, I had a huge issue with perfectionism and um you know those diff- those predictable difficult work relationships, jealousy, you know uh overwork, feeling so pressed and overwhelmed, and then you know, I had things happen like uh chronic pain, I had two frozen shoulders for a long time, so i I just started looking for things, and every time I had a difficult time, I found more tools and then, as a result of those tools, you know over time. I discovered no matter what's going on in my life, of course I'm going to have the shock and awe period where I hate it, I resist it, I'm judging it, I'm feeling awful. But then I know that I have these tools I can grab that will help me work toward a peaceful state of mind. And from that peaceful state of mind, I begin to find ways of looking at whatever situation looked horrible before. I find ways of looking at it differently. And then out of that, I'll know how to act or not act. So that's been a big blessing to have all those tools.
0: Yeah, and and one of the things I always say is that, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all. Just like for the students in our classroom, the learning techniques and methods are not one-size-fits-all because students are individuals. Well, so are are adults, you know, and and not only are we individuals where what might work for me doesn't work for you, but also what works for me today or in this situation maybe isn't the thing that worked last week or maybe it's a different exactly. thing that I'm feeling called to in this situation or feeling is is um, helpful in this situation that I'm in, you know, this new situation that I'm in. And because that's why I love that even the title of your book is not um, How to Never Worry Again Ever.
1: <laughs> it's 50 ways right. to worry less. Yes, <laughs> not,
0: that's right. And it's fifty, And you can choose one or more of those ways and it won't eliminate worry forever because life happens but you'll be worrying less.
1: So let's talk about some of those tools, if that's all right with you. Great, yeah. Well, you know, the the whole idea of overwhelm, stress, perfectionism, I mean, I, I sort of lumped that. It's not just worry, it's negative thinking and self-defeating thinking, which I labeled in the book as whispered lies. And these whispered lies are whispered into my head from the part of me that's afraid, Um, The part of me that's negative, you know, the old habits of negative thinking, it's not like they go away 100%. We just learn to deal with them better and to see them and recognize that we have a choice whether to jump on the wagon of that negative thought and just go on down the track or to say, wait a minute, this isn't, you know, I've got myself all worked up and I need to do something to change it. So, you know, some of the whispered, typical whispered lies, or I call it sometimes stinkin' thinkin', or some of my friends call it the oh so helpful committee in my head. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I like that. I
1: should think I highlighted that bit in the book. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, you know, throughout the writing of my book, I had a lot of whispered lies playing with me. You know, people yeah, criticize yeah. me, it won't be good enough, etc. But in, you know, in the midst of our our work lives, especially the education community, I would, you know, my, some of my whispered lies were, I can't get it all done. I'll fail. This is this, you know, these are going on in my head. Now, sometimes they're unconscious because we're so anxiety and worked up that we can't stop long enough to even listen to what our brains are telling us. Um, another one is, it won't be good enough. You know, or for an early career teacher, my God, it's such a hard learning curve. Yeah. And, you know, to say to oneself instead of I'll never get this, just to say I will get this, I'm a beginner. Yeah, I love that. You know, so or, you know, that comparing ourselves, you know, how we compare our insides with other people's outsides. So Mary next door, she looks like she's got it all together. Of course, her kids never misbehave. Ha ha ha. You know. <laughs> so that whispered lie, I'm not as good as Mary. And, and those are the things that, um, you know, they kind of, well, they're very debilitating. Yeah. And I, and I have to put in here that, um, I believe that this, the essence of each of us is a good, strong, wise, calm, person and in our modern life and through our upbringing some of those whispered lies got installed you know maybe by parents or friends or negative relationships or the education system that is still expecting us to you know achieve certain standards to be good enough that's right so you know they it's not like anybody escapes without any whispered lies. I think the question is we all get to a point where it's just too much. I have to figure out a way to stay sane in this career that I love. So, one of the one of the simplest most powerful tips is um what I call the golden key and that can be um you can google the golden key and you'll find the name of the developer Emmett fox emmap fox and and it'll give you the exact transcript now i've for the technique i've changed it a little and made it a little less um religious sounding but it's it's the most simple thing and it really works um first you th- you think of either a phrase like all is well or if you have a favorite prayer you know the serenity prayer or whatever prayer you like or it could be an image of a rose or um, a lake scene that, or the ocean that brings you peace. You know, it's, it's some either words or image in your mind that's going to feel uplifting to you. So you figure out what that is first. Okay, then here comes the whispered lie, right? <laughs> I'll never be able to figure this out. This happened to me when I was trying to figure out how to upload my ebook on Kindle. Oh uh, yeah. Anyway, so the whispered lies, you're never gonna be able to figure this out, you know? <laughs> and um so I noticed that I was saying that to myself. I didn't punish myself for it. It's natural when I get frustrated. And then I just redirected my mind away from the whispered lie and toward my phrase. So let's say my phrase is um, you know, all is well, I'll eventually figure that out. You know, all is well, eventually I'll figure it out. Well, guess what my mind does? Goes back to the whispered lie, right? I'm already tense and it's going to take a while. So the recommendation for the tip is that I just monitor my thoughts. And when I catch myself getting tense and scaring myself with my thoughts, I gently bring my mind back to my positive thought or image. Well, then... It may have to be done, this redirecting, 10 times a minute. Yeah. Or many times a day. But here's the cool thing. Emmett Fox says, and this has been my experience too, by the sheer action of attempting to change my thinking from the negative to something more positive, the situation I was so worked up over in the first place will be taken care of. Now, it sounds a little magical, but if you think about the research on, you know, what you think, what we what we focus on comes true, manifestation, you know, a lot of that stuff about positive thinking and drawing the good into our lives and all that. You know, if we keep focusing on negativity that's just what's going to come back to us well it's
0: just what we notice as well yeah. it's just the way our brain filters things exactly. so if we're focusing on i mean we see that in the classroom all the time if you're focusing on the students doing the wrong thing you even though there might be 25 students out of 28 doing the right thing you only see the three doing the wrong thing you, you just you, they're the, the other 25 doing the right thing are there you just don't see them exactly so you're not noticing yeah. that your brain you're training the brain to look for something else.
1: It's such a um I mean, our brains are hardwired to look out for what's going to go wrong, right? Because we're wired for survival. So it's not a bad tendency, you know, but it is sometimes not the most helpful tendency. Yeah, exactly. So it's really not where we gravitate first. It's when we notice where our minds have gravitated, then what do we do? Can we choose a different, more positive thought? Um, One spiritual tradition I study just says uh, you send it out to the universe or whatever you might see as something bigger than your fear, and you just say, help me to see this differently. Help me to see this differently. That is an incredibly powerful thing to say.
0: It doesn't change the immediate situation, but it changes your, if you can see something differently, it can change your experience of the immediate situation. Exactly.
1: Your perspective. And and I've learned that I can never act in a situation where I'm freaked out. If I'm anxious and tense, I will probably, if I act or say anything, I will probably make the situation worse. And then I'll feel even worse. So I've learned, some of us call it the, the two-day rule, you know. Some, But I let's say a teacher says something nasty to me. Or let's say I have a meeting coming up with a parent who's been difficult over time, and I'm really tense about it. Um, If I can use the golden key, and there's a couple of other things I'll mention, to get myself into a place of peace, peace of mind. Some people use, you know, mindful breathing. If anybody listening is a meditator, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And by the way, you don't have to not have any thoughts to be a good yeah. meditator. I, right. love, I love the guided meditations that just reprogram my thinking just by be sitting down and listening and breathing with it. But anyway, it's like it's like the discipline of breathing, where I notice that my thinking is negative, and then I I turn it around.
0: It's just redirecting in the same way we redirect students in our classroom. And there's always a couple of students that you have to redirect. Repeatedly the same thing, you know, maybe every day f- or five times a day for the whole year, you know, all four legs of the chair on the floor. Thanks, Johnny. Right. Like right. Over and over all yeah. day.
1: <laughs> you know, the and the negative thoughts can be made worse by the people we hang around with. So there's a decision to be made. Uh, you know that teacher Planning room conversation or the teacher lunch room where everyone's awfulizing how hard they're working, you know, the the very dramatic thing, and I and I think that's maybe helpful to some extent because we need you know to kind of all acknowledge how hard we're working and how hard things are, but then when we get jump on the train and join the story about it's going to be this way and the administration's going to do that and we're not going to be able to and we get into all this living in the wreckage of our future and all this negativity, then we're just whipping ourselves up into a higher and higher state of tension from which I don't think we can operate in the most loving, caring way in any situation.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think you're right. There's a difference between being, because you talk about the importance of being honest about our worries and life's difficulties in, in, in the book, and, and I think there is a difference between that that conversation in the staff room that is, "Wow, this is really hard. I'm having a bad day, or I'm, I'm struggling with such and such." That's a different kind of honesty, and it's. I wouldn't say that's necessarily negative because that's just acknowledging the the struggles compared to, as you say, getting wrapped up in the story and kind of getting feeding off each other and I love that line living in the wreckage of the future
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's the essence of negative thinking yeah it's a different it's just different (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I think it's you know that importance of finding what I call in the book growth partners but especially for early career teachers you know there are a lot of teacher lunchrooms you can't go in and say you're struggling with something or you're a reader because it's not a safe place um, right? or everybody just jumps in and comes back with their own awful stories. Well, how does that help you? So it's really important to find a person, whether it's in the school or out of the school, that will not just uh, jump on the bandwagon with you and reinforce all your worries and inflame them more. And it's equally um Unhelpful to have a friend who just says, well, tell, let me tell you about how it was for me because then they're not, they're not giving you the care of focusing on what's bothering you. And it, it's also not that helpful. And this often happens when we share with men because they want to help us. You know, it's not that helpful to, jo- you know, share with someone who's going to immediately jump in and give you suggestions mm, because, you know, yeah, I, I'll use their idea. And if it doesn't work, I can blame them. So, you know, the most empowering people to share with, and we're really blessed when we can find just one of them, is someone who will listen and then try to understand. So what you're worried about is, or you're anticipating that this parent's going to blah, you know, help me delve into my thinking and what's, how I'm scaring myself. And then I don't know if in Australia, cognitive coaching is a, Something people have learned so con-
0: I don't think it's something I mean that's essentially what I do with with people and I coach them but i don't I really don't think it's well known or well understood I think in fact, I was just just having a conversation with someone this morning about how I need to write some some stuff on my website about actually what I do with people because um I think a lot of people maybe don't understand what coaching is in that in that context um and also I don't think in Australia we have a we don't have a strong culture around therapy or twelve step programs. I mean, they're there, but it's it's not part of the oh yeah um, cultural narrative. I think the way it is in the states, which is I think I think a shame for us because there's so much power in in that for people that need it, and I think it's a little bit more normalized in in the states than it is because Australia tends to be a bit. Uh, she'll be right um <laughs> have of that. okay we'll wrap up part one of my interview with Gigi there stay tuned for the next episode where Gigi shares one of the best acronyms I have ever heard and as you know teachers we know a lot of acronyms as well as some really excellent further tips to help teachers increase their health happiness and well-being Until the next episode, remember you're a person first and a teacher second, and you are worthy of your own care. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. I'd love it also if you would leave a rating and review in iTunes and share it with your friends. This really helps the podcast reach more people and together we can spread the message of teacher well-being to create thriving school communities. Show notes for this episode can be found at selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash podcast. You can also find me at facebook.com forward slash selfcareforteachers and on Instagram my handle is at selfcareforteachers so come along and follow me there.